Ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to LSE and, and uh, welcome to this, which is the fourth lecture uh, in the Department of Management series, Business in the Global Age. Um, my name is Saul Estrin. I'm a professor of management and head of the new Department of Management. Um, and for those of you who are new to this series, just to say that this series is, is uh, the Department of Management's uh, contribution to the broader uh, public life of the school, intellectual life of the school, and, um, and celebrates uh, the creation of this new department, which has now been going about a year, uh, and which will be moving into a new building that some of you will be, have seen in uh, uh, Kingsway uh, over the summer. I'm very happy to welcome uh, John Hutton MP, who's the Secretary of State for Business, Enterprise, and Regulatory Reform. Uh, Mr. Hutton has had a long and uh, distinguished career, uh, inclu including a brief stint at uh, Templeton College, Oxford, is now part of the Said Business School and therefore one of our uh, premier competitors. And he also spent more than uh, a decade as an academic. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, threw that all aside to uh, enter the House of Commons in 1992 and has uh, steadily risen up, holding a series of key posts, including uh, uh, one that's uh, of increasing importance previously. That his previous post was in work and pensions. Uh, he's now gone... Uh, to business enterprise and regulatory form, obviously an extremely important role. Uh, uh, and I think it's uh, illustrative that his predecessor in this post was uh, Alistair Darling, now the Chancellor, so perhaps this augurs very well for the next stage of his career as well. Uh, Mr. Hutton's going to talk about, you know, an issue of great interest uh, to students at the school and to researchers at the school about uh, the open economy. Uh, um, and he's talking about the response to global change. I think this really fits the theme of this lecture series and I'm very much looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that, uh, that introduction. It's, it's always fascinating when your, your, your life is summarized in 27 seconds uh, like that. Thank you, Thank you for, for that introduction. Um, look, I, I'm really very pleased to be here tonight and uh, have a chance to, uh, to speak to all of you tonight about this subject of globalization. It's a, it's a real privilege to be at the London School of Economics. The Fabian founders of the LSE, George Bernard Shaw, Graham Wallace, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, I believe stand in a very long line of great distinguished progressive thinkers in, in the UK. They all recognize that creating an open society was vital to unlocking the potential and talent of our country and its people, all of them. In the last century, we tackled the barriers, I believe, both legal and cultural, that had always held people back from playing a full part as equals in British society. We established universal education and health services, extended the right to vote, secured religious freedom, and we've attempted to tackle gender equality, racial and sexual discrimination. And at each and all of those steps, we have seen that the extension of freedom and equality is, of course, a basic human right for the individual. And that opening up our society by allowing people to stand as equals enriches and strengthens it beyond measure. And of course, as a small island nation reaching out across the world, Britain, I believe, has similarly driven progress towards a more open economy to match our open society. In the 18th century, the father of modern economics, Adam Smith, would watch trading ships from across Europe arrive and leave the port near his home in Kirkcaldy. And throughout our history as a country, we have relied on this, that spirit of discovery, innovation, and open trade, typified by those ships to build our power and wealth as a country. And over 150 years ago, Britain enacted a new law to create the limited company so that our entrepreneurs could invest in what were seen as risky global ventures, creating markets and trade routes throughout the world, drawing nations closer together through the bond of commerce. And of course, technology played a key role too in that era of globalization. Refrigeration was just one of the 19th century technologies that the British helped to develop, and then used to break open massive new markets for meat and dairy products across Australasia. And I fundamentally believe such ambition and experience offers the UK huge historic advantages, both economically and culturally, as we tackle now, in this century, the challenges of globalization. 
we are one of the world's most open economies, a global hub for international finance and commerce. We've built links with nations in every continent of the world and speak the world's most commonly understood language. We have the potential expertise and the ideas to win as a knowledge-based economy against competitors increasingly racing to the top. And as a government, we're trying to make the, the tough choices and necessary investments in our people to ensure we have the ambition and policies to make all of that happen. So whilst I believe a consensus has emerged in developed countries on the basic necessity of opening our society, many people, particularly those who would say they're on the left of politics in Britain and across the world, continue to have an ambivalent attitude towards the emerging open globalized economy. Despite our history, and even after 10 years of rising prosperity, built on the foundations of solid economic growth and advancing free trade with other nations, I suspect few student radicals here at the LSE or anywhere else have yet to replace Che Guevara with Adam Smith as their T-shirt icon of choice. And the few that possibly have are probably not the people you most want to drink uh, a pint of beer in the tons after a heavy day in the library. Now, this of course is not a new argument. It's raged in some form or another since trading between individuals and countries began. But what I think is different about this latest wave of globalization is the speed and intensity of the political, economic, social, and technological forces that have combined together now to create this unprecedented era of global trade. In the last few decades, the collapse of communism, shifting demographics, increased open trade, exponential technological advancement, and the emergence of large, rapidly growing economies like China and India have together restarted a global revolution led by British manufacturers and inventors over 200 years ago. The impacts of this new economic era have seen developing countries play an increasing role in world trade. Over the last decade, China and India's exports alone have increased fivefold, from just over $210 billion in 1996 to over $1.25 trillion in 2006. They've more than doubled their share of world exports, from just over 3% to 8.5%. It's unleashed a renewed movement of people, commerce, capital, and innovation throughout the global economy, and powered the creation and transformation of markets, jobs and industries across the world at ever-increasing speed. By 2000, the global economy had expanded to include 6 billion people and rising. More than 1.5 billion new workers have joined the world's workforce. World merchandise exports are at an all-time high, both in absolute terms and proportion to GDP. In 2005, exports were 25% of global GDP, compared to 12% in 1913. Across the world, centrally planned economies that were once completely closed off and which starved their people of both ambition and basic resources are now taking huge leaps forward in trading with other nations. Free market economics are increasingly the norm. But as the pace of this latest wave of globalization continues to intensify, the competitive pressures on individuals and industries can only increase. New technologies, ways of living, and methods of working can appear to endanger the value of long-established industries, jobs and skills, sometimes overnight. And many people question whether the risks of losing what we have in the developed world outweigh what we might gain from free trade and open markets. And others oppose globalization from the opposite angle, arguing that it can only increase exploitation of poorer countries and our planet at the hands of the rich and the powerful. Now, the choices we face here in this country and around the world in the years ahead and the decisions we make are, are critical. They ultimately boil down to whether we view the role of government as being a shield to shelter people from the disruptive consequences of globalization, or we see government as a helping hand to give individuals the tools they need to overcome the challenges and to maximize the new opportunities the global marketplace can offer. You won't be surprised, I'm sure, that I take the latter view. Our whole approach as new labor to government has been to recognize that you cannot stop and reverse these economic changes. Instead, the task of progressive governments is to give people 
in every corner of the world the support they need to manage and benefit from these forces of change. Now, if we take the opposite course, to close our economies either through tariff or non-trade barriers, I think we'll merely delay the inevitable and make its eventual impact much worse. So I want to argue tonight that just as once those who were determined to build a fairer, more open country rallied around the need to break down the social barriers that held us back, I think it is now time to forge a progressive consensus around a truly open economy. This is the only way, I think, to deliver our shared goals of fairness and rising national prosperity in Britain and around the world. Unlocking the, the talent and potential of every individual, every company, and every nation to succeed by breaking down the barriers that prevent our economy from being truly open. And at the same time, explode once and for all the idea that those on the progressive side of politics must oppose free open markets in order to defend democracy and social justice. But if we are to lead and win the debate over increased openness across our own and the global economy, I think fundamentally we've got to do three basic things. First, in politics and in economics, honesty is always the best policy. To fully debunk the inaccurate myths that exist around globalization, I think we've got to acknowledge that there are downsides to it. People can lose out from globalization. Any successful argument for an open economy must therefore accept this reality and offer solutions to equip people to succeed in the face of that turbulence. Secondly, we must properly define what the role of government should be in the new open economy, how it can best enable greater openness give people more support and critically be clear too about the limits of government intervention. And finally, we must ask if government is currently geared up for the role it must now play. Are our own centuries-old government institutions and the world organizations, which are there to support trade and commerce, robust and fleet of foot enough to deal with the shocks, shifts and rewards of the new global economy? Are we fully equipped to choose between competing priorities and offer sufficiently strong safeguards to resist the ever-present temptation to succumb to countless short-term pressures to intervene? So an honest assessment of the scale of the global changes currently underway clearly shows the benefits that have already been secured for the world. In a speech to the World Economic Forum in 2000, President Bill Clinton described what it meant for families in the developed world. Imports promote the well-being of working families by making their dollars go further. They bring new technology and ideas. Globalization dampens inflation and spurs innovation. According to the latest UK Family Expenditure Survey, falling high street prices for clothes and footwear have actually halved the level of household spending on these items from 10% to 5% in the last 50 years. Do we wear less shoes? Do we wear less clothes? I don't think so. Armed with technology and more open markets, consumers now have the chance to compare prices and purchase an increasingly diverse range of goods and services from across the world. They can more readily share complaints and ideas with their suppliers. It is also the case that examples of workplace abuses uncovered in developing countries, and of course there have been such examples, have made all those employing low-wage labor overseas <coughs> subject, in fact, to intense and highly damaging criticism in the developed world. Globalization has only served to amplify the negative impact on corporate reputation of those kinds of practices. Businesses pay an increasingly high premium for any abusive behavior. But increased global trade has also changed the lives of billions of people in the developing world for the better. No country in modern times has lifted itself out of poverty without increasing its trade. For many, the arrival of a multinational corporation in their community can mean the chance of a lasting route out of poverty and vital investment in local infrastructure and public services. According to the UN, between 1990 and 2004, the number of people living in developing regions on less than a dollar a day dropped by over 12%. The poverty gap in most of these countries is also closing, with an overall regional decrease from 9.3 to 5.4%. And many of you probably read a recent article in The Economist which stated that between 1999 and 2004, 
135 million people across the world escaped absolute poverty. More people, more quickly than at any other time in the history of our planet. Now, that is progress on an unprecedented scale, driven in no small part by the shifting patterns of trade and industry that globalization and rapid technological development have unleashed. A World Bank study of 19 poor countries concluded that every 1% increase in national income per head translated into a 1.3% poor of 0.4 in extreme poverty. Now, it's not fast enough, nor sufficiently widespread. It certainly doesn't alleviate the need for governments to do more, sometimes much more. And yes, it's driven by a desire to increase global corporate revenues. But it's also making a genuine difference to the world's poorest people. So for many people faced with a choice between no job and no school for their kids, and a job in a new Coca-Cola factory and a place in a Coke-branded school, I think for many people that decision is a no-brainer. As Kofi Annan said over 10 years ago, open markets offer the only realistic hope of pulling billions of people in developing countries out of abject poverty while sustaining prosperity in the industrialized world. In Britain, opening our doors to foreign companies wishing to invest here has complemented and enriched homegrown talent rather than stifling it, as many predicted. It has been a key factor in the unprecedented economic success that's seen 2.6 million new jobs created in the British economy in the last 10 years and over half a million children lifted out of poverty here. And it's seen foreign-owned companies like Honda, Nissan and Toyota directly employing around 14,000 people across Britain and investing hundreds of billions of pounds each year in our country. In total, foreign-owned businesses account for around 9% of UK service jobs, 20% of UK production jobs and undertake a staggering 40% of business R&D. But there are real downsides, and they're real. Money and opportunities flow to where a job can be done most effectively, and the real-life impacts of this fact can devastate families and communities for years. Every single one of the million jobs in manufacturing, for example, that we have lost in Britain over the last 10 years has hurt real people. And regardless of the fact that unemployment has fallen to its lowest levels for 30 years, Many who have found some of the new jobs still feel uncertain and insecure about their own future. Now, faced with this reality, the strong temptation for many governments is to reach for the shield of protectionism. That means increasing domestic subsidies to prevent companies from relocating, introducing high tariffs and hidden non-tariff barriers that disadvantage cheaper goods coming in from abroad, implementing prohibitive new labor market regulations, that sometimes make it harder to move jobs around, bringing forward restrictions on foreign ownership of companies, and sometimes overcoming uncertainty around foreign labor market standards simply by cancelling wholesale withdrawal from less developed countries. But for me, the answer to all of these problems lie in increased openness, not less openness. For example, we built a world-leading financial sector here in London by embracing full liberalization and open competition, welcoming foreign investment, and international banking institutions, and ensuring we have the best skills, knowledge, and expertise in this field. As a result, we've created a global hub here in London for financial services, supporting now over a million jobs. That's grown rapidly over the last five years and increased its share of GDP from just over 5% in 2001 to nearly 10% in 2006. I believe the best way for us to tackle global challenges, such as poverty, climate change and increasing economic competitiveness is not by limiting the success of those individuals and companies who do well, but by increasing the opportunities of all to do better. Breaking down the barriers both within and beyond countries that hold people back to create what President John Kennedy said back in the 1960s, the rising tide that can lift all boats. And then of course there is the economics. One of the things that you, you learn in government very quickly is that you can only spend the same pound once. In opposition, you can spend it several times over. But spending it, subsidizing an uncompetitive industry, 
every year you'll fall further behind more dynamic and open competitors. You'll delay or ignore altogether the chance to make your own economy genuinely productive and more successful. The gap your subsidy must fill actually then becomes bigger, not smaller. Tomorrow's success will be lost only for false hopes today. Maintain trade barriers and you miss out on the enormous potential of dynamic new markets. The most striking message from my recent visit to China and India with the Prime Minister and the heads of 30 of Britain's leading companies and universities was not the scale of the threat these nations posed, but the massive opportunities they present to us and others. China continues to export in great volumes to Britain, keeping prices down for UK consumers and companies. But we're also stepping up trade of high-value goods and services in the opposite direction, as the aspirations and the spending power of the Chinese people grows substantially. London now ranks as the most popular destination for Chinese companies looking to expand into Europe. And the UK is the largest European investor in China, with nearly 6,000 projects ongoing, worth in total over $15 billion. Now, there's potential here for even greater growth that can benefit both China and the UK. A McKinsey Global Institute report estimated recently that Chinese urban consumer spending will grow more than fivefold in real terms from just over $440 billion per year in 2005 to $2.3 trillion in 2025, making it the world's third largest consumer economy. Now try and hold on to the jobs already located in Britain with more and more regulation, and you'll only make more companies think twice about investing or creating new jobs in this country. That investment is going to be critical to our economy and our people's lives in the future. In 2006-07, inward investment projects created 36,000 new jobs and safeguarded a further 40,000. Cut off trade with the developing world or impose on developing countries British employment rights or wage rates as a bare minimum you will accept as a consumer and you'll cut off millions of people's chances of a better life and the chance to expose true workplace abuses to the glare of international condemnation and consumer pressure. Speaking to an American reporter in 2005, a young Bangladeshi textile worker <coughs> explained how vital the country's participation in global trade was to her. She said, our living standards have improved thanks to the new textile industries. With the salary I earn, I support my whole family. If we lose our jobs, we will not belong to any class. If protectionist rhetoric and action offers a temporary and ultimately flimsy shield from change and competition, what should, therefore, our response be? We can't ignore the changes of globalization that they bring and do nothing. Following the approach of governments faced with economic upheaval in previous decades, that was their approach, to do nothing. Confronted by a worker who has just been told that his livelihood is being shipped overseas, it's not enough to simply shrug and say they have to get over it because the country as a whole is going to be better off. Nor is the long-established narrow attitude of British free traders to simply remove legal barriers like international tariffs, quotas, and restrictive standards enough to ensure that a global economy brings benefits to all. Instead, the focus and power of government, working in partnership with business and others, must be to maximize potential in the British economy, enabling UK businesses, consumers, and families to deal effectively with the impacts of globalization and to create even more opportunities by opening our economy still further. We must treat the lack of guidance for a school leaver to get the skills he needs to progress up the career ladder, or limits to the chances for a budding entrepreneur to make her idea a reality, to be as big and serious a threat to a truly open economy as any legal barrier to trade. We must act so that as many of our people as possible can prosper through change and uncertainty ready and equipped to use their talents and fulfill their ambitions, whatever the challenges and opportunities ahead. Now, that is going to be the approach of this Labour government, and particularly of the new department the Prime Minister has asked me to lead. Today, we've published a new document, Globalisation and the Changing UK Economy, a paper that sets out what we believe are the UK's policy priorities for tackling globalisation. I think there are seven things yeah. we've got to do.
We've got to continue to work across the globe to open up overseas markets, drawing high-value inward investment to UK business and promote both UK private and public sector goods and services abroad. The work of one part of my department, UK Trade and Investment, delivers an estimated and additional financial benefit to UK businesses of around £2.5 billion a year. It also helps us develop global business partnerships, trade routes and research relationships that will help us tackle some of the world's biggest problems, issues such as climate change, for example. It's a fact that the world's rapid economic growth is still largely being powered by fossil fuels. Energy demand is soaring, and many argue that increased consumer demand and international trade is bound to destroy our global environment. But it's also the case that global partnerships and trade are the best way for us all to build a more sustainable, prosperous future. And as the Stern Review concluded, this is a global challenge that demands global solutions. Developing ambitious but fair and achievable targets for countries to tackle climate change is going to be essential. Strengthening international emissions trading schemes to drive cost-effective reductions in emissions and promote investment in and the development of the best low-carbon solutions will be crucial too. Taking joint action to reduce deforestation and help those countries most vulnerable to climate change adapt to a low-carbon future. Now, whether it's working with the Chinese government on the deployment of carbon capture storage technology and the building of the new eco-cities in China, or with the European Union on meeting the, and our own ambitions for global leadership in this area, these are just some of the powerful global measures the world can and must take to limit and deal with the impacts of climate change. To further support growth at home, we've got to ensure our macroeconomic framework also remains strong and stable with the right tax framework to encourage investment and growth. We should also support and encourage investment in infrastructure, such as in liberalized energy and telecommunications markets and in world-class transport links, including Crossrail here in London. Our labor markets must tackle the abuses and barriers that hold people back from a better and more fulfilled life and ensure that as many of our people as possible can progress through work. You don't have to trade economic success for social justice. Ensuring a progressive society with access to basic employment rights, such as a minimum wage, full entitlement to statutory leave, and family-friendly policies, like extended maternity and maternity leave, is one of the best ways to guarantee sustained and growing prosperity. In a recent work-life balanced employer survey, 92% of employers said that people work best when they can balance their work and other aspects of their life. And that's obviously right. And other research shows that since the introduction of family-friendly legislation, such as the extension of paid maternity leave, the proportion of mothers who change their employer when returning to work has in fact halved from over 40% in 2002 to 20% in 2005. In the years ahead, we will also need, in Britain, a skills revolution with a massive boost to skill levels across the UK workforce. The loss of individual jobs and sectors and the creation of new careers and industries mean that one of the most important interventions we can make is to help equip people for the uncertainty they face and enable them to adapt, prosper, and gain employment, whatever future globalization brings. Now, this is a social as well as an economic imperative, as hopefully we continue our race to the top, competing against new economic leaders, now spending more to boost innovation and skills themselves. The progressive approach to immigration policy pioneered by this Labour government must remain in place for the benefit of all our people, combining strong and secure borders with a recognition of the way in which, properly managed, migration can enrich our economy by bringing fresh talent to Britain. Around 17% of current economic growth can be directly attributed to immigration, and £6 billion of output growth alone in 2006. We should also pursue rigorous competition laws that drive productivity and innovation in business, with a dynamic economy at home, equipping us for competition abroad. And that protects and empowers consumers, giving effective means of redress and handing genuine power down to the lowest level as an integral feature of a vibrant economy and also a fair society. And because no one and no country is above the natural instinct to fear change, we must ensure that those frameworks are strong and transparent enough to deliver a genuine level playing field that cannot be circumvented. Systems that offer protection against the natural instinct of benefiting from someone else's openness 
while closing your own economy off when it becomes under threat. We should also foster the right environment for entrepreneurship, ensuring Britain is maximizing the potential of its entrepreneurs. Now, although here we compare well with our European neighbors, we still lag significantly behind the United States, the world's most entrepreneurial nation. Now, our aim, I think, should be to harness the talents of everyone, to stimulate higher levels of enterprise and to help more entrepreneurs succeed at home and overseas. Recognizing the fact that no country can expect to succeed and compete effectively without making the most of the skills and talents of all its people. Our renewed enterprise framework, uh, I hope, will help us secure some of these goals and will be published later in the spring. And finally, governments must ensure that all of the regions of the UK benefit from our open economy. And I think here that means two things. It means effective policies that support our outstanding examples of regional success and encourage new innovation. The government is committed to supporting national assets such as our aerospace industry, not through protectionism and subsidy, but through ensuring the right environment for research and development of new technologies that will underpin future growth. Secondly, it means doing everything we can to enable people, communities and regions dealing with business closure and redundancies, like my own, to develop the new jobs of the future. The government's commitment to regeneration, strong regional economies throughout the country, bolstered by dynamic regional development agencies, should mean, I hope, no repeat of the travesties of the 1980s and the 1990s, where ministers sat back and watched whole communities like my own spiral into deep decline following the closure of traditional industries. And I would just invite all of you tonight to compare the Thatcher government's attitude to the mining towns decimated following pit closures <coughs> with this government's response to the collapse of MG Rover in 2005. The £150 million of support we provided included payments to employees, support for local suppliers, and transition loan fund training, job finding services, and contribution to regional innovation and technology programs. And as a result, more than 90% of the former employees of MG Rover and its suppliers have now left social security benefits altogether. I think that's a difference. With government investment and support, employment has increased in all UK regions over the last 10 years. And the latest figures show that all English regions have improved their economic performance compared with the EU 15 average. But perhaps above all, in a world where maintaining a competitive edge is the only way for Britain to prosper into the future, I think ministers, governments, should have the discipline to limit our interventions. We must be determined in setting our priorities as a nation and taking forward only those that are both effectively targeted, support a competitive economy, and which are essential to our progressive social ambitions. Now, that does mean a lot of tough choices. And to give one example from my own portfolio in government, we've had hundreds of fresh demands for new employment regulations, which have been submitted to us over the duration of this parliament alone. A decade ago, Bill Clinton surprised many of his own Democratic Party in America by proclaiming that the era of big government was over. Ten years on, any doubts over his assessment should be dispelled by the fluidity of the global environment we face. And yes, it presents a challenge. How does a progressive government, passionately committed to tackling discrimination and disadvantage, prioritize these demands for regulation? given the absolute necessity of making further progress on issues like tackling climate change, enhancing national security, strengthening our pension system, all of which have costs to our economy, costs that are less effectively managed, could conflict with our vital national aim of keeping the UK as competitive as possible. Now that leads on to the third question I posed at the beginning of this lecture, which I know feels like a very long time ago. How can we strengthen our national and international institutions for the role we ask them to play in an open economy? On a national level, I think we've got to continue to reform the heavy-handed ways in which laws can often be implemented. Now, we've set an ambitious target to save businesses billions of pounds by reducing red tape and 
transformed how we scrutinize the impact of any new policy proposals on business and other sectors. But the challenging economic period we are entering, perhaps more important than simply drafting better laws, will be the ability to withstand many of the countless pressures to intervene and say no to costly and unnecessary regulation. Equally important will be ensuring our laws, particularly the UK's planning regime, do not hold us back from changing our country to face up to some of these new challenges. So we've got to succeed in implementing changes in the planning bill that will avoid, avoid endless delays in improving our national infrastructure. At a European Union level, we must continually question whether the EU is geared up to embrace the new global economy. For example, average import tariffs between OECD countries are around 3%. But these tariffs reach over 500% in the European Union, with the highest tariffs levied on agricultural goods from the developed world. So we should continue to push for an overhaul of laws on trade defense. Designed to prevent unfair dumping in EU countries, these have failed to keep pace with what developments in the global economy and EU enlargement means for EU businesses and other interests. And, and across the world, as Gordon Brown made clear in India last month, we should look again at the rules, purposes, and structures of our global institutions, designed in a post-war world for a very different international landscape. We should be looking to make radical but necessary reforms to global organizations such as the World Bank, the IMF, and the G8 that reflect the rise of Asia, our growing global interdependence, and the increased flow of people, capital, goods, and services across the world. Now, this includes extending the remit and investment reach of the World Bank to help all countries work together to tackle the world's biggest challenges and benefit from the opportunities it presents. Refocusing IMF efforts to prevent rather than just manage and resolve global financial crises. And enabling these global institutions and others, such as the Financial Stability Forum, to work more closely to promote and ensure political and economic stability. Now, we also remain committed to working with the EU to achieve an ambitious and pro-development agenda through the World Trade Organization. And we should continue to push for such an outcome, which I firmly believe is in our global best interests. So open economies recognize and enable the power of what Adam Smith described as the natural effort of every individual to better his own condition. A principle that is alone and without any assistance capable of carrying on the society to wealth and prosperity. The role of any government seeking success in this uncertain and increasingly competitive world must be to help unlock that potential and talent and enable all its people to meet their ambitions. Protectionist rhetoric may assuage what Alan Greenspan describes as our inner couch potato. But in the long term, closed economies harm far more people especially the most vulnerable in society, and they help. They offer little in the future to create or safeguard jobs, raise living standards, boost investment, innovation, and progress, or help us tackle the big challenges of this century. Now, of course, competition isn't easy. Not everyone in the global economy can win every time. But I strongly believe that by recognizing that fact and working to equip people to better adapt and deal with it, we can harness the benefits increased open trade offers individuals, businesses, and countries. And although I doubt that following this speech, poster sales for Adam Smith will rival those of Che Guevara, I hope and will continue to work on ensuring that this country and others look outward to maximize the aspirations, discovery, and innovation he recognized as inherent in all of us, and that has helped us throughout our history to make this country a great nation. Thank you very much. agreed to take questions and I think there are um, people with microphones getting into position um, just a couple of things about the questions first of all um, this first, person here, uh, first of all um, if people could say uh, who they are and where they come from before they uh, ask their question that would be nice and secondly if people could actually ask a question uh, uh, rather than make a statement that would also be quite nice thank you 
Thank you. My name is uh, Daniel Kremin, and I work for Bellenden Public Affairs. And um, I've just got two points, really, I wanted to raise. Um, first one, really, uh, is very relevant on the international stage. I actually work for the All-Party Parliamentary China Group, and we do a lot of work with British companies who, you know, are obviously interested in the group's activities. And one of the key things we're looking at is, is that, as you were talking about the high-value technology uh, services and the goods and services that we're trying to now develop, out in China, um, you know, the access to markets. There are real challenges in terms of intellectual property rights and also taking back some of the science, you know, that some of the innovation that's out in China about channeling the benefits of that back into the UK economy. And how much are UKTI really geared up in, you know, to actually really help British companies fully exploit the opportunities in China and what more can be done than is being currently done to do that? Second point, just very quickly, is on the competition regime. And um, I think we have first-rate competition uh, commission. I think the Office of Fair Trading is consistently rates very highly. But what you turn to tonight is very important, and I think it's the consumer empowerment and rights agenda in the UK, particularly in the global economy, uh, when we're seeing growing you know, inequalities within the UK in terms of people's level and access to information. Um, what's your view in terms of consumer empowerment and the next stage for Burr for what it could specifically do um, at the subnational level down to, down to in terms of empowering people to better know the goods and services that they're buying and uh, what could be done in terms of empowering local authorities to better provide one-shop services for advice, whether in public services but also in the private sector? Thanks very much. I'll take a, a few questions at a time. Hi there, I'm Raf Kay from Cambridge and um, I was just wondering, you mentioned quite a lot of statistics at the start <coughs> about absolute poverty and uh, increasing exportation from uh, many developing countries. I was wondering what your views are on the fact that um, many sub-Saharan economies have actually digressed in trying to reach their Millennium Development Goals. Robert Condon, I work for the communication group, um, also in public affairs. I wonder what your department is doing at a practical level in Brussels to fight against the protectionist mindset of some of the club med countries and actually you know, shout for open markets. There, there are a lot of relevant debates happening right now in Brussels. I'll take one more question uh, this round. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jack McDonald. Um, I live in Lambeth. Um, I, just, I get a bit nervous when you quote John F. Kennedy on the rising tide lifts uh, with sore boats um, because I fear that the next step from that is trickle-down economics. Um, are you able to reassure me that that's not what New Labour is advocating? Could you, sorry, I don't think sorry. We, either of us actually got it down at the front, so could you just say the whole thing again? All right. Uh, <laughs> I get a bit nervous when you quote John F. Kennedy uh, on the rising tide lifts all boats um, because I, I get a bit scared that the next step from that is trickle-down economics. Are you able to reassure me that that's not what New Labour is advocating? Um, yeah, no, that's not what JFK was advocating either, by the way. Uh, he, he had a very different perspective on this. So I think actually JFK, one of the great progressive politicians of, of the century. Um, I, I think, that, so I want to reassure you that I'm not talking about trickle-down economics. But, okay, hopefully that's the answer to, to that question. Um, look, three, three very, very good points. Daniel's question about, um, two-pronged two question, I've, intellectual property rights and consumer empowerment. The country that filed the most patents last year was China. The country that has the biggest problem on IPR enforcement is China. And there are many British companies who are uh, companies around the developed world anxious about their IPR in China, of course. Um, I think actually what we've, what we've, what we've got now is, is sort of almost a, the full circle turning. Who is becoming the country with the most interest in protecting the patents? China. So I think there's a very good prospect that we can actually get to a point <coughs> where IPR rights are properly recognized and strengthened around the world. It's not just in China, uh, which is a very, very important precondition, I think for continued engagement, particularly in the high technology sectors. And that is where the UK, I think, can add significant value to its order book around the world as a trading nation. Um, sometimes our high technology sectors are, you know, not as visible perhaps as they should be. 
we've got some of the best technology sectors you know, in, in manufacturing anywhere in the world here. So it's really important for us. I think we need to have a, a strengthened, as I said, international regime. I think we can build support for that. It's not really UKTI's job, really, I think, to, to try and nail down all of these problems because they're not really within its, its remit. It's going to take government-to-government action, international action to strengthen the, that, that framework of, of IPR. Perversely, there are some technologies where we want to be completely open about IPR. Carbon capture and storage is one. Um, you know, if we are really going to make a difference, and we have to, because without carbon capture, we're, we've got a big hole, literally, in our carbon mitigation strategy. Maybe we, we've got 30% of carbon that we're currently budgeting that we can take out of the atmosphere that we can't if we don't get CCS around the world. So I think in that is a case where you know, let's just let everyone have a look at what, we, what we've got. Let's make it open house so people can, can, can develop that technology. That's what we're going to need, I think, if we're going to make a, a difference there. On consumer empowerment, it's very, very interesting. This. I think this is one area where government can do more. And we are, we are looking at the moment in, in the department for how we can really ratchet up the work we do on empowering consumers to tackle you know, bad practice and to, to give them really the, the strength they need in our market economy to, 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 to work on quality and, and service and so on. Um, we sit on a shed load of data, actually, about uh, consumer-related material, which I think most people would like to have a look at. So we should let them have a look at it. So I think through this process of exchange of information, making it clear what we've got and where the problems are in our economy on this sort of issue, I think we can strengthen our competitive framework and support our market economy. I think the point that was made about sub-Saharan Africa is, is absolutely spot on. If you ask the question, who has gained the most from globalization? Well, it's Asia. I mean, it's undeniably the case that the Asian economy is powering ahead. Do we see similar gains in Latin America, Africa? No, we don't. Brazil maybe is the one exception, but I think you couldn't possibly argue that globalization has had the same effect right across the world. So we're going to need different approaches to deal with this problem about creating an inclusive globalization, which is essentially, I think, the progressive challenge. You know, it's not the traditional historic job you know, of the free traders. Dismantle all the barriers and let's just see what happens and hopefully it will work out. And if it doesn't, well, you get winners and losers. I don't think that really should be the right approach of, of the progressive politician in the new century. So I think we've got to look at things like how we work with the African Union, others, the UN, to, to make sure we focus on the particular problems that we, we've got to deal with in Africa. The same is true in Latin America. I think there's, there's, a, there's an agenda there that really does need to be developed. So look, I think, I hope I wasn't trying to make the mistake of saying that everyone wins, it's fine. It isn't, definitely not. So over and above globalization, I think the benefits of the free and open trade that I'm advocating, we will need to do some other stuff. Um, and that's where I think partly some of the, this work that Gordon has talked about in reforming international institutions, I think, can, can be, be particularly helpful. EU and protectionism. Well, look, there is a, a rising tide of protectionism in the European Union. It's undeniable. You read the newspapers. Anyone can work that one out. I think it's not unreasonable, you know, however, to expect something like that to be the political reaction to globalization. It, it's inevitable. You will get that sort of spectrum of opinion being expressed in our democratic politics in, in Europe. You don't need to go far from here if you walk out into the street and ask people about globalization. You know, they'd probably say, well, I don't like it. You should stop it. You know, so it's not an unreasonable or an ab- sort of perverse reaction for people to have because they feel profoundly challenged by it. I think the job of Europe's political leadership is to be absolutely clear and consistent about, about all of these issues. And I think we've got a job of work to do so what's the UK government doing? Well, we're arguing the corner very vociferously. Uh, we've done so in relation to um, the Trade Commission's review of the trade defence instruments, the Trade Defence Review. It's a disappointing outcome of that. But I think we've got to continue to work hard on, on making the case. I think with the Treaty of Lisbon, you know, a lot of people will say, is that helpful or not? I think it's a very helpful restatement of Europe's pro-open market trade credentials. And I think we've got to take that as a gain and work and, and build on it and so on. So I'm basically optimistic about, about all of these things in, in the European Union. Uh, I think we'll get there. But it's what um, Churchill said about the Americans. I apologize to all the Americans in, in the room tonight. He said, um, Americans, great people. She was right. Uh, they always do the right thing. They're having explored all the alternatives first. And you get a sense about that with the European Union and its view on these things. But we will get there. Um, I'm actually going to exploit my position as uh, chair to ask one question uh, uh, and then we'll take a second round. Um, I think you, 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 your lecture uh, 
made the point rightly that it's not wise and probably not feasible to try and stand against uh, for one country to try and stand against the tide of globalization of international markets. But of course, we know that there are lots of problems with how markets operate. Do you therefore see any potential roles more international level for countries to work together um, to try and address some of the, the lacuna that come out of a, a completely free market system, global free market system, for example, in competition policy to deal with uh, multinational enterprises that can't be dealt with by competition policy, but in any particular country and group of countries. Um, and you, you did mention international institutions like the World Bank and IMF, but they've got a fairly defined agenda. But I just wondered whether you saw any possibility of um, uh, the, the large continents working together, so to speak, to regulate uh, the market of this global market in the future. Mm. I think it, it depends on what you mean by, by regulate. Uh, I think that's the, the $64,000 question. I mean, if you just take what we do in the European Union as, a, as an example, we do have very strong transnational uh, antitrust uh, protection. We have a very strong framework of laws across the 27 members of the European Union that are designed to, to make sure that within the single market that there is effective um, pro-competition regulation. Um, it's politically quite difficult to see how you could replicate that in any other international forum. I think it's going to be quite difficult to do that. I think the Doha round is an opportunity, I think, to secure a very significant advance, not just on the open market, the free trade agenda, but also on the, the essential system of rules that's going to govern uh, international trade. And I think you can do it through that type of mechanism, um, I hope. I think there'll be the need for much more transparency about how the WTO arbitration and dispute procedure works. Because at the moment, it's, it's not really comparable to any other kind of judicial or legal process. And I think that transparency is important. But I think outside of the WTO, I, I don't think it's likely that there'll be any other obvious context in which to, to tackle that sort of problem, because there is simply no other sort of political space, I think, that exists to do that. It's um, quite a lot of hands. You were first, I think. Hi, yeah, my name's uh, Joe Parkinson. I work for Dow Jones Newswires. Um, I'd like to ask a question about sovereign wealth funds, which in many ways are the litmus test for exactly how open an economy is prepared to be right now. I want to know that the UK government's been consistent in saying that it's open to sovereign wealth fund investments, whereas continental Europe's been making some more sort of protectionist noises. Um, exactly how open are we? Where is the line? Is there a line? If the Russians, for example, a Russian fund wanted to buy into our energy sector, would that be something that the government would accept? And has the government made a calculation that by being more open than the Europeans, our equity markets in a time of economic uncertainty look a lot more attractive than the Europeans? Thanks. Uh, David um, from uh, Public Affairs Consultancy in London. Uh, you talk about globalization in a global world, and over the last couple of weeks we've had various problems, whether economic or political. Do you not feel it's time for global regulation on various things, economic, political, financial, etc., etc.? And so everyone in this country lives by a set of rules, and, um, and, and we benefit from those rules, so everyone around the world, especially the poorest and, uh, and most vulnerable, can live by the same rules. And where does education fit into uh, your model, do, do you feel that you want, to um, you want to benefit our economy and everyone else's economy? Do you feel that everyone should live by the same um, educational rules as well? Thanks. My name's Harriet. Um, you talked about the loss of jobs and sectors and calling for a, a skills revolution um, and how to equip people to adapt and prosper. Um, what do you have in mind in the future in terms of what kind of skills you think people need and um, for what kind of jobs? Um, Joe's point about sovereign wealth, uh, again, I, I, it's, a, it's a very, very shrewd question. Yeah, okay. Joe jo asked about sovereign wealth uh, funds and how open should we be. I think we should be open about sovereign wealth. I think there are clearly some sectors, defence, um, maybe energy, where there are issues that we've got to take into account very carefully. But I think generally you can deal with those potential 
problems by having strong um, competition frameworks that deal with any prospect of market abuse or anything else. I think that the striking thing about sovereign wealth is that, look, most of these funds, they operate on commercial, on commercial lines. It's a good thing. They, they become shareholders. They, they have a, an asset to protect and to secure. That is why they've made the investments that they have done. Um, I think we've got to be sure about all of these things. There should be openness and transparency about this. Corporate governance, um, all of these things, I think, have got to be clear. But I think we shouldn't fear sovereign wealth. Um, and I think it's one of those you know, ideas, people think, well, it's a new thing. No, it isn't a new thing. Uh, you know, we've had sovereign wealth funds investing in the UK for a very, very long time. Um, I think, it, in a sense, it, it joined up with what David was saying about, you know, shouldn't we have all this, this global regulation? I think the big thing we've got to try and avoid, if we can at the moment, is heavy-handed regulation. There are concerns. I think they can be addressed in the way that I've described through either in some sectors golden shares that government still hold on to. We do hold on to some golden shares. Um, you know, antitrust, strong competition laws, and so on. Rather than a, an attempt to try and create a, a new set of laws internationally or you know, pan-Europe or whatever, that seek to impose restrictions on sovereign wealth funds investing in, in Europe. I just think that is entirely the wrong approach to take. Will it benefit equity markets in the UK? I hope so. <coughs> for sure. Um, and I think it could be an important source of liquidity as well for many companies. That's a good thing too at the moment. Yeah, but I'm not going to show you my, my numbers <laughs> on that one. But I, I think the, look, the real calculation we've made about sovereign wealth fund is that look, we can't preach the merits of open economies and then practice something totally different at home. I mean, that is just not a credible response. How is that going to build a consensus internationally for the sort of benefits that will accrue from globalization that I've referred to? Well, it won't. You know, it would simply create a reverse pressure for, for other, others to discriminate against British investors. And we are a massive source, uh, British companies, of foreign investment. I don't think you know, people will distinguish between sovereign wealth and private wealth in that respect when it comes to investment overseas. They won't. So, look, it's fundamentally in our national interest to have an open uh, and welcoming attitude to sovereign wealth funds. And I think as long as the investment is clear, clearly along commercial lines and there's, there's evidence of that, I don't think we should get paranoid about sovereign wealth. So I think, David, my answer to your question as well is, no, I don't think we need a whole new sort of, you know, layer of regulations to deal with some of these problems. I think in sovereign wealth, I think a good code of conduct here in the UK across the European Union and internationally would be a helpful thing. When we were in China, President Prime Premier Wen said something very, very significant actually about how CIC will operate, um, the Chinese Investment Corporation, um, strictly on commercial lines, complying with local corporate governance requirements and other regulatory requirements in, in national jurisdictions. You know, these, I think, are important reassurances that I think we can, we can, we can hold them to. I think Harriet's question about skills, I did actually leave out, Harriet, quite a lot in my speech about the Leach Review and other things because I, I could see people's eyes were beginning to, to glaze over. The, the government has, has published a whole series of announcements. John Denham announced only last week uh, a completely new framework for modern apprenticeships to, to be developed in the UK. Now, I know maybe these are not terribly exciting sort of subjects for, for, for people here tonight, but they are part of the, the, the absolutely essential prerequisites for equipping the UK to, to meet the challenge of globalization. I think if you were to go back, say, 25 years, and there was, a, let's say, another trade industry minister here in the beginning of the 80s, and you'd ask him or her to predict where the new jobs will be in the British economy in 2008, 2010, I bet they would have got most of that wrong. Um, the speed of technological advance and development, the way that the world has opened up, it's all different now. Um, ideas are, are on the march. I think when it comes to the skills revolution that we need, I think it's a question of investment. It's a question of facilitating choices for people about the skills that they, they want to recruit. But it's not a one-off thing that you do between 16 and 25. It's, a, it's an ongoing lifetime thing. I think those are some of the practical ways that you can help uh, people deal with, with the challenge. When I was at the Department for Work and Pensions, I kept being sort of shown these statistics. They would all wave in front of my face every sort of half an hour or so. People now will change careers maybe seven or eight times in their lifetime. You know, when I grew up, you trained for a career. Now, that I think is the 
you know, the difference now. So, you know, typically, one of my constituents might need to change his or her whole sort of economic life mm. half a dozen times, and there need to be new investment and skills and opportunities to acquire those skills along the way. So, rather than sit here and say, well, we need a particular type of skill or a particular type of training, I think the, the training system has got to be flexible. It's got to be demand-led by employers. We've got to be in the driving seat because they're the ones who create the jobs. I don't create the jobs. Uh, and I think if we can get some of those basic features designed into our training system, I think we'll make a, a really positive, progressive step forward. And I think the skills challenge, along with the, the energy challenge, I think those are actually two at the moment of the most pressing concerns for British companies. You know, we have skill shortages. It's crazy. Uh, we've got to fix that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think um, we've learned tonight how a progressive government will progressive politicians thinking about policy making in the global economy, not standing in the way of its undoubted benefits but trying to address uh, its more likely uh, damaging consequences. We've had a wide-ranging lecture and we've had a really excellent discussion and frank answers to questions. So on your behalf, I'd like to thank John very much indeed for coming.